Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. From the Gert Boyle Studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. For almost 25 years, the Seattle-based nonprofit news source Grist has focused on the urgent problem of climate change and ways to tackle it. They recently put out a list of 50 people in the U.S. who they have identified as fixers, leaders in a wide variety of fields who are all working on solutions for a more sustainable future. Portland's Tanya Barham is one of them. Barham is a CEO of Community Energy Labs, which focuses on helping schools and other public buildings use energy more efficiently. Tanya Barham, welcome back to the show. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. It's great to have you on. Why are you focused on building energy use? That's a great question. I'm not sure if you're aware or if most folks are aware. 40% of global carbon emissions comes from buildings. And most of that comes from electricity use, not just energy use. So even as we decarbonize by reducing direct combustion of gas or propane, um, even as we electrify, we still have this carbon footprint that comes from the interaction with the grid. And so it makes sense to electrify everything and then clean up the grid, right? But that actually requires some physical bridging between buildings and the grid so that for safety and reliability reasons and a whole number of reasons, like if you run everything electric in your house, you pop the circuit breaker, right? Well, the grid is just a circuit. So when everything's electric, for safety reasons, we need to coordinate those things up. And there is a lot of complexity in how to do that with buildings. They're the main driver of peak load for the grid. They're the main driver of carbon emissions. And that's why I wanted to focus on buildings. What are the biggest energy users within buildings? I mean, I, I would just imagine it's heating and cooling. Is that is that right? Bing, 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 bing. <laughs> Dave gets an A. I love it. Yeah. It's heating and cooling applications are the largest drivers of energy use in um, most building applications. It'd be lighting first. Um, all of us can do something about lighting. That's pretty easy. We can replace it with much more efficient lighting. But then heating and cooling applications, anything that heats or cools water or air. So that's going to be your furnace. That's going to be your water heater. How did you decide to focus on one particular piece of this, which is the controls for energy use? As opposed, I mean, because if I understand correctly, you're not going out there trying to convince schools to to switch to heat pumps. Right. A lot of people are doing that, yeah. uh, talking about it and, and working on that. But you, you're focused on something very specific, the controls yeah. of existing infrastructure? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, I, I have a long history here in Portland. The Pacific Northwest is, of course, you know, this this place is a wonderful place to sort of grow up as an environmentalist. So my history is working with Bonneville Environmental Foundation. We started the Solar for Our Schools program, which is now a na nationwide program right over there in West Lynn. Um, I worked at PECI twice, and the first time doing HVAC diagnostics. So I know a lot about the grid side, about energy efficiency programs, about solar and renewables. Um, and I also worked briefly at PGE, working on their virtual power plants. Well, um, uh, one thing that I noticed is that when we would call for what's called demand-side flexibility, when we would call for uh, when the grid would ask the things that use power from the grid to be flexible in their energy use, that flexibility didn't always show up. And so I wanted to go really deep on why. And so I started talking to— well, Let me make sure I understand the yeah. words you're using. Mm -hmm. So when you would ask— um, 
a building owner to stop using so much electricity at at 6 p.m. Mm. I mean, what, when you say that you were asking for flexibility and it wasn't coming, who were you asking and, and, and what were they saying? Yeah, that's a so flexibility can come from a lot of different places, right? Um, if you think about it, most of us come home. If we have an electric car, we might plug in our car. We might turn in all of our devices. And this creates peaks in energy usage. And um, electricity needs to be used at the moment that it's generated. It has to be consumed. So um, you see in places like California where there's a move toward electricity that you can't just ramp up and down, there's more solar, there's more wind, um, that it changes when things are available. So matching that supply and demand is really important for grid operators. However, we in our homes are so used to what's called baseload generation that we just turn on the light when we want to turn on the light. We want to be warm when we want to be warm. And there actually is a lot of flexibility in when and how much energy we use. And that's one of the reasons people love heat pumps. Heat pumps are different than the existing technology where it just, oh, oh, the water's cold? Okay, just heat it up at the max possible heat. And then you have warm water, whereas heat pumps slowly ramp up over the day so that you're sipping rather than guzzling that electricity. So th there's a lot that goes on that we don't know about the grid. And what flexibility looks like was a lot of different things. So in some cases, we would use batteries. That tends to be very expensive flexibility. Um, in other cases, we would have industrial uh, customers. So one example of flexibility would be, I believe, um, the, there's like the Ross Island Quarry uh, over on uh, Macadam or MLK, and it'd literally be like you'd, you would call the building operator and be like, Joe, turn off the rock chipper. You know, there was that kind of flexibility, a big load. But then there are also programs like many people might have what's called flex time rewards where the utility sends you an email or a text message saying, hey, uh, we're we're forecasting that there's going to be a lot of demand for energy and not as much supply. Either our coal-fired plant is offline, it tripped offline because it's too hot out, or, you know, for whatever reason, there's a shortage. We need people to conserve. And sometimes that's automatic and sometimes you would ask for it. And what we saw was that it was not always predictable. So when I looked at the programs that were predictable, like what happens if you just let the utility control your thermostat, for example, or your water heater? Because remember, the biggest drivers of this need for energy are your heating and cooling. Well, I was talking to a lot of different people in commercial and residential applications, so homeowners, businesses, schools, public buildings, and the same issue kept coming up over and, and over again. And I think the way that one woman answered my question is sort of emblematic for me about why I really decided to focus on this controls piece. She said to me, I said, hey, do you participate in our peak time rewards program? And her answer was, oh, um, so is that that program where you will pay me $5 a month to turn off my air conditioning on the hottest day in summer? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's the one. And she's like, no, why would I do that? <laughs> that's why I have my air conditioner. It's, it's like right in parentheses with sort of the second half of her answer. Right. So, you know, my thought was we are never going to solve this issue of energy flexibility unless we can also guarantee a certain amount of comfort, unless we as a utility understand that people who are using energy to them – from the utility perspective, we call them rate payers. We call it load. 
But from their perspective, they're like, this is my CPAP. This is my oxygen. This is my refrigeration. Th- that, this those is are, my HVAC. Those are on-off things. I mean, it's, yeah. it's worth saying that for your last example, the question could be, what if you have it set to 72 as opposed to 69? Exactly. Right. I mean, so that it doesn't exactly. have to be so binary. Exactly. Okay. So, but why did you end up focusing on very specific customers, places like schools or, or other public agencies. Yeah. So once I started looking at that, I said, okay, we need a solution that can balance comfort. Someone needs to be comfortable or they will not participate um, with grid needs, right? So um, then I started talking to people about, you know, decarbonization and what would they be willing to do, et cetera, et cetera. Typically the way that we do that, so for a homeowner, you can install a single thermostat, right? And you can get it more or less for free from PGE. Maybe it ends up costing you 200 bucks. Maybe you get two of them in your home, right? What I found was that if you are a school or a public entity, um, and if you're a homeowner or a private entity, There are subsidies, or you can go out and get a loan, right? You can make a decision to get a loan, or you could do here in Multnomah County. We're lucky to have something called property assessed clean energy, where it just becomes, you know, it's part of your property taxes. So that's all great. But if you're a public building owner, um, you will need to make capital improvements in order to uh, – save that energy or get that kinds of flexibility. And what I found was that because of their procurement processes, you know, typically if you're, say, a school district, um, you need to pass a bond in order to make capital improvements that can get you this kind of energy efficiency and control. Passing that bond is getting harder and harder, particularly we work a lot with rural communities where their bonding capacity is shrinking as the number of people in their community shrinks. Or, you know, like everything else that's been eaten by partisanship, it becomes really difficult to pass a bond measure. So they have no way to finance these energy enhancements or, uh, you know, heat pumps, et cetera. They need something cheap, fast. And then on top of it all, even if they do put in these heat pumps, they might have, you know, you've got two rooms in your house. They might have 30 to 120, all of them turn on at once in order to manage that in a way that isn't going to pass along something called a demand charge, which is what commercial customers have to pay. They need to sequence when all of those HVAC units start up in addition to keeping everyone comfortable because you might have elders, you might have children. And so when I said to them, I said, well, what would it take? How much would it need to cost so that you wouldn't have to go through a long, drawn-out, multi-year bonding or procurement process? And they said, if it costs less than Fifty twenty thousand to fifty thousand dollars, and it could deliver. It could reduce our demand charges, which are anywhere from thirty to sixty percent of our bill, um, and it could be done without interrupting the school day. You know, so we can still provide services to the public, elders, students, whatever. Um, we would buy it. So I went out and said, "Well, what technology could do that?" So I really started with the problem first that you know, thirty percent of commercial buildings in the United States are publicly owned, and because of their procurement, you know, good stewardship of taxpayer dollars, unfortunately, makes their procurement processes much more difficult than private entities or single homeowners. And so what would be a low-cost solution that could deliver both comfort while reducing energy by as much as 20 to 30 percent? Let me um, give you what I I understand to be the short version of the product you have. um, Sure. And then then just to to speed things up, because I have so many questions about this. Correct (laughs) me if this is wrong. But essentially, you you offer, say, a school district buys your product. Mm -hmm. For a month or more, you have... 
this kind of smart algorithm machine learning mm-hmm. thing, which pays attention to the, the temperature, how much energy is being used and what the heater and cooling actually means in different places. Yep. It learns what's what the status quo is, and then it figures out a smarter way, a more energy efficient way to 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 use the existing appliances for heating and cooling in a building. Is is that basically right? Yeah, I would say that's it. We like to say that our technology enables clean, all-electric, self-driving buildings, though it can be used in a gas application as well. Essentially, it does what no other technology on the market is doing. It is delivering comfort. It can guarantee comfort while reducing energy consumption by up to 23%. So that's my question. How do you do that? How how does um, how do those kinds of energy consumption savings, how are they realized w- without a, a, a huge blow to comfort? Yeah, that's a great example. So what we do is very, very different. And this is like, oh, gosh, I worry about doing this live on air because I'm like, how deep am I going? And am I going to lose everybody? Um, We've got smart listeners. I know we do. And five minutes. (laughs) Okay. Uh, (laughs) So keep that in mind, too. You just interrupt me if you need to. Um, I, I think about it like cruise control or spinning plates. So we use something different. So there are two types of controls on the market right now that are prevalent. So there's something called building automation systems, or you might have a smart thermostat. And they tend to use what It's called a set point. So for each zone in a building, they're looking at the set point, and then they're measuring the indoor air temperature and trying to heat or cool uh, so that you maintain that set point. Um, And they'll use something called either rules-based control or proportional integral derivative control. Our controller is different. It uses uh, physics to solve this problem. So essentially what we do is we set up a very simple physics-based model of the building. We look at blueprints of these commercial buildings, and we use those. We feed those into a machine learning algorithm that sets up a very simple physics-based model of the building that models how heat is transferred between, let's say, the sun and the southern wall, between each room or zone in the building, and it takes a guess at what the thermal dynamics or the physics are of that building. Then, during that month that you were talking about, typically during unoccupied periods, so really depends on the application, we do work with some low to moderate income multifamily housing in addition to Um, schools, and so it's a little different there. But let's say in the school example, on the weekend, will make the robot will make adjustments. It will it knows what it thinks the thermal dynamic how they work in the building, but it'll change the set points around just to see what happens to the indoor air temperature when it turns equipment on and off. And it will refine its model so that it now says, I understand how much I'm paying in terms of kilowatts, which you can then translate into carbon or money, I understand how much I pay for every degree or heating and cooling in this specific room and how that works throughout the whole building and the whole campus. So we then give it a test and we say, you need to tell us what the indoor air temperature of this room will be over the next six to 24 hours. And when it passes that test, so when we apply its answers retroactively to what really happened in the building, and it can it, it is accurately predicting the thermal dynamics of the building with an A or B better at 90% accuracy, then we allow it to use that model to also control the building. And it's updating its controls every five minutes. So it's sampling and making decisions and forward predictions every five minutes for every zone in the building. So you think about that. Like a human would never have the ability to keep updating their strategy every five minutes in 125 zones. So, but it's a computer. It, it is it 
never tires of this job. It's the perfect job. I say that machine learning is like a toddler. You know, if you if if you would say to a toddler like, "Hey, mom, every time the sun comes out, turn on this fan. Every time the sun goes down, turn off the fan." A toddler would love that job. So if it's a job that a toddler would love to do, it's the perfect job for AI. What you've just described is is the the mechanism of how the AI works. But mm-hmm. I'm now I guess it still makes me wonder what what the version of waste is that's happening right now. Is it that furnaces are on when they don't need to be on to achieve the mm-hmm. same level of coming? Mm-hmm. What, what's what's the the real world difference in in the heating or cooling that that automation is making possible? Yeah. Does so, that make sense? Yeah. So if you, let's just take one room, for example. Uh, so your room, the temperature in the room, say your set point is, you say, uh, 70 degrees. When this room gets more than 70 degrees, turn on mechanical cooling. So use a mechanical element, which is going to drive your energy cost, to cool this room. That mecha- that calculation has no understanding of what will actually – how the room might heat up or cool down or store energy. It doesn't understand the thermal dynamics of the building or the envelope. It just knows this room is cold. I'm going to try to, based on my rules that I've been taught – you know, you know how it works in your house. I'm going to try to bring the temperature back up to a level, and then I'm, you know, going to wait until it hits that threshold again, and then start cooling again. Well, when you do that with no awareness of what's happening in all the other rooms, what you'll have is multiple compressors running at the same time, driving up the overall energy consumption, and they might be applying too much heating or cooling. Whereas, if you have an idea of how heat is transferred, for example, a school is a great example. We know every single day that at noon. Kids are going to leave the classroom and go to lunch, so it reduces the cooling load, for example, in a classroom. And so what happens is the the energy goes way down. But every day at 1 o'clock, everybody comes back in. And a typical system can't predict what's going to happen. But we know all of a sudden the cooling load's going to go way up, so you see this huge spike. And so this actually can prevent that. So what, what you're saying is... How does that work? Well, it works because it actually knows what's going to happen in advance and can move things around to achieve the same objective with less mechanical cooling. In 45 seconds, what would it take to have what you're describing just be a standard part of HVAC controls? Greater awareness, I think, knowing that it's out there. So right now we have a pilot with the Department of Energy, another one with the United States Department of Agriculture, and several pilots with California and uh, Washington Utilities. Everybody who has a school or commercial building out there that wants to test this out and really prove out the value, um, I think it's just greater awareness is actually the only thing. Because on a purely economic basis, it makes total sense to all the folks that we talk to. Tanya Barham, thanks very much. Thank you so much, Dave. Tanya Barham is on a recent list of climate solutions leaders that Grist put together. We actually had the two other Oregonians on this year's list on the show in the past, high school climate activist Danny Cage and solar punk editor Justine Norton-Kurtzen.